the pontifical sanctuary of the Holy Stairs, also known as Scala Sancta, are a set of 28 marble steps located in Rome, Italy. According to an ancient Catholic tradition, St. Helena, the mother of the great Constantine, had the stairs transported from Pontius Pilate's palace in Jerusalem to Rome, circa AD 326. The reason? Because it was believed that Jesus himself climbed these stairs on the day that he was sentenced to death. Thus they are known as the Holy Stairs. Tradition holds the Roman Catholic Church granted indulgences or pardoning of sins by priest for anyone who would climb these steps, get this, not just climb it, but on their knees uh, as an act of penitent devotion. But not only that, not only climb up the steps on their knees as they meditated on the passion of Jesus and recite creeds, one our Father, one Hail Mary, one glory be and prayer for the intentions of the Pope and also go to confession and also receive Holy Communion. Then they would receive this pardoning of sin. Among countless devotees who climbed these steps, Martin Luther, the great reformer, before he was a reformer, when he was a Roman Catholic monk, also crawled up these steps on his knees in 1510, seven years before the Reformation, because it was told by doing this work, one could redeem a soul from purgatory. But it said, when Luther arrived at the top of the steps, he could not suppress his doubt. Who knows whether this is really true? Several decades later, Charles Spurgeon, who also visited these stairs, wrote of his observations, and I quote, Those who adore the Pope and kissed whatever he gave them to kiss, be it toe or relic or embroidery, not came amiss, were of course reverent kissers of the staircase. It was a mournful spectacle to look up and see poor human nature so degraded as to be crawling up a staircase with a view of reaching heaven. Close quote. Charles Dickens, the English writer, once visited also these steps in 1845, described the scene of the pilgrims ascending the staircase on their knees as a dangerous reliance on outward observances. The question for us this afternoon, how can sinful men be made right before a holy God? How can sinful men be made right before a holy God? This dilemma has tormented men and women down throughout the centuries, through history. It's been the reason why many penitents need their way up the steps of the Scala Sancta with no certain assurance for salvation. It's the reason countless monks wear hair shirts embedded with fish hooks in an attempt to be pardoned of their sins by their penance. To this day, it causes natives of the South Sea Islands to sacrifice chickens and sprinkle their blood to their gods. In more civilized countries, many settle for going to church or some other form of good deeds to placate their guilty consciences. And everywhere men and women try to justify themselves by rationalizing or excusing their evil actions. So again, the question for us, how can man be made right with God? How can men and women be justified before a holy God? There's only one answer. A man can be made right with God only through the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ alone can make us right with God. Christ alone can justify sinners. We're continuing our study through the epistle to the Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel. 
And our passage, uh, verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2, contains the central thesis of the letter. Paul was addressing the, uh, to the churches in the region of Galatia, Gentile Christians, who were being influenced by those who claimed to be Christians who were Jews, who wanted to interject their cultural practices as a requirement for faith. These so-called Judaizers, as Paul addressed them, were seeking to add to the one true gospel in which it actually nullified the gospel entirely. Therefore, Paul wanted to impress upon the Galatian Christians the truth of the gospel they had already received, the gospel of grace. And so Paul reminded them that acceptance with God is only possible through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and not through anything else. That there is no other gospel, and that any and every other so-called gospel was to be anathema, damnable before God. Because when you add anything to the gospel, it doesn't save. It reverses Christ's finished work. It doesn't please God. Rather, it's offensive to God. Hence Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry in chapter 1 and the recounting of his unlikely supernatural conversion in the second half of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 had led him to this definitive declaration of the doctrine of the justification by faith. As I said two weeks ago, it's the doctrine in which the entirety of the Protestant Reformation and even our entire faith hinges on justification by faith. As Luther said, when the doctrine of justification is lost, nothing remains except error and hypocrisy and godlessness and idolatry. If the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole Christian doctrine is lost. Two weeks ago, I was supposed to preach the entirety of chapter 2 in one sermon, but I was gravely mistaken. I was struggling uh, to think that I could preach today's verses along with verses 1 through 14. As one theologian says, in these seven verses, 15 through 21, Paul used some of the most compressed language found anywhere else in his epistles to set forth this central thesis. And he says nearly every word in these few verses is a landmine on the battlefield of biblical scholarship. Well, pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the people next to you that God would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of his word. Amen? Well, here's part two, covering verses 15 through 21, continuing last week's overarching question, what are the implications of knowing the true gospel? In other words, if you know something as glorious and wonderful as this gospel of Jesus Christ, how do you guard it? And how do you ensure its continuance? Last time I shared three points. Point number one, I shared partnership through gospel unity from verse 1 through 10. You saw this in the way Paul, along with Barnabas and Titus, 14 years after his conversion, makes his way to Jerusalem for a visit. Paul had been preaching the gospel of grace for 14 years, independently, faithfully, commissioned and schooled by the risen Christ himself. And on an occasion in which, uh, by a revelation, Paul was called to help the poor in Jerusalem due to a severe famine, which you can read about in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, Paul stops by to meet with Peter and James and John, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, to partner together for gospel unity. A second, furthermore, we saw how Paul aimed for the preservation of the gospel through gospel purity from verses 11 through 14. When Paul saw that the apostle Peter was acting as a hypocrite in no longer eating with the Gentiles in fear of the Judaizers, Paul confronts Peter publicly for his public sin, doesn't he? Paul rebukes a brother, even an apostle, in error, whose sin was even causing other Christians to stumble 
and follow in his steps. And listen, Paul does this not because he is rude or harsh or because Paul had a confrontational personality, but because of love for a fellow brother. But more importantly, even more than that, because the gospel cannot be compromised and so that the gospel might be preserved for us according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 5. Moreover, how might the true gospel be guarded and advanced? The third point last week was perseverance through gospel clarity from verses 15 through 21. And this afternoon, under that heading, I want to share with you three statements for gospel clarity in order that the gospel may persevere through us and in us. So here's the outline so you know where we're headed. What about the gospel must we be absolutely clear on? Three points. We are justified, point number one, through faith, verses 15 through 16. Point number two, in Christ, 17 through 19. And point three, by grace, verses 20 through 21. We are justified through faith, in Christ, by grace. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this message you will be reignited afresh by the power of the gospel. I pray through this word you will cherish anew the doctrine of justification for your encouragement and edification. If you are here and you do not consider yourself a Christian or are not sure that you are, welcome. As Sharif said, we're so glad that you're here. We've been praying for you that God would lead you here today. Perhaps you, like so many throughout the centuries, sought to be justified before God, to have peace with God, to be made right with God by your own self-righteousness or by your own works. Well, we pray that this message will show you that justification is only possible through the sinless sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would look to him and call on him and trust in him today. So without further ado, let's turn now to our passage, which can be found on page 973 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, uh, let me encourage you to please keep your Bibles open during the entire duration of the message and follow along so that you know that the words I share are from God's word to encourage you and build you up in him today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 says this. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. How do we persevere in the gospel? We must be clear about the gospel. Hence, what about the gospel must we be clear on? Point number one, we are justified through faith. From verses 15 through 16. Verses 15 through 16 begins the conclusion of the section Paul began in chapter 1, verse 11, regarding the truth of the gospel. And Paul does it in these last verses by summarizing the gospel he had been contending for with theological precision and concision. As Dr. Tom Schreiner, who is our next week's guest speaker, says, this section is perhaps the most significant text 
in Galatians because it functions as a hermeneutical or interpretive key for the remainder of the letter. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 summarizes the themes developed thus far and introduces the theological exposition of justification by faith. That's verse 15 and 16. And Paul would pursue it further in chapters 3 and 4. In verses 17 through 19, you'll see how Paul anticipates objections to the doctrine of justification, which Paul will also pursue further in chapters 5 and 6. Well then, what about these verses? Clarify the gospel. The first observation you can make from verses 15 through 16 is that Paul is continuing his corrective dialogue with Peter. But we'll see how Paul uses this dialogue in rebuking and correcting Peter to apply to the rest of the Galatian Christians who were similarly tempted to stray from the true gospel. So this was not merely a personal clash between two leading apostles or even a rift between two sections of a church, but rather this was about the one and only basis for salvation for all people everywhere. Well, that's why in verse 15 through 16, Paul continues to correct Peter, but he's instructing the Galatians and he's instructing us. Look at verse 15. In speaking of Paul and Peter themselves, we ourselves, he says, are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners. In referring to Gentile sinners, in which the CSB translation properly notes these words in quotation marks, Paul was not denying that as Jews by birth, they were also sinners. He, Paul was not denying that. But Paul's point is that they were not sinners in the same way as the Gentiles were, who are not part of God's covenant people. You see, Gentiles were known for their idolatry and subsequent immorality, Hence, they had not received God's saving promises. Hence, Paul was referencing Gentile sinners from the viewpoint of the Jews. Yet, Paul says, look at verse 16. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul points out, whether Jews by birth or Gentile sinners, it doesn't matter. One reality is true for all. Now pause and see for a second what word stands out in verse 16. Can you guess? Somebody shout it out if you see what word stands out. Evan says, justified. Yeah, that's right. This is the first time Paul mentions the word justified. It's the word and the doctrine this epistle is so famous for and the theme in which Galatians had so much impact in the entirety of Christianity. And so that we won't miss it, that word justified, which is used eight times in the whole of the epistle to the Galatians, three of those eight times is in this one verse, verse 16. Can you believe it? Paul is saying, pay attention. Paul is saying, this is significant. Listen. Dr. Schreiner again comments, verse 16 is clearly one of the most important verses in all of Galatians, packed with some of the most important themes in this letter. Three times Paul asserts that right standing with God does not come by keeping the law. No, it doesn't come by keeping the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. First, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Second, Paul says, we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
Third, Paul says, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What is Paul saying? He's saying the same thing three times over. The reason for repetition is for clarity. Because let me just tell you again, clarity is crucial. Because the themes introduced for the first time in this epistle, justification, works of the law, faith in Jesus Christ, which are all phrases repeated three times, requires explanation, requires careful exegesis. And it matters to us because the right interpretation and understanding of these phrases, which make up one of the most important doctrines of our faith, makes all the difference whether we stand on the right side of faith or not. In this instance, Peter or Paul, Judaizers or Gentile Christians, Roman Catholicism or Protestantism, justification by works of the law or justification through faith, which is right. It was a crucial moment in history that would impact generations, and you can see why gospel clarity was necessary. So let's consider each of those phrases briefly. That's repeated three times for us, for Paul wanting us to know and pay attention to it. The first phrase, justified. To be justified in the most basic meaning is the declaration that somebody is in the right. It's a legal term that refers to a person's standing, theologically speaking, before the bar of God's justice. I want you guys to know, brothers and sisters, justification should not be confused with forgiveness, which is the fruit or the result of justification. Nor should we confuse justification with atonement, which is the basis, the grounds of justification. Rather, justification is the favorable verdict of God who is the righteous judge. So think of it this way. In order to be declared right with God, I must be righteous, right? But the truth is, the fact is, I am not righteous. I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. So then the dilemma, the question for all of us, how then can I justify myself to God? And Paul answers the question of how sinners can be justified by God by the two following phrases, also repeated three times. By the works of the law, no one will be justified, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's consider the next phrase, works of the law. This phrase, again, is intensely debated by biblical scholars. What does Paul mean by the phrase, works of the law? Three main views are proposed, and it's helpful for us to consider them. First, does Paul mean by the works of the law, legalism, a distorted obsession with the law? Think of all the extra-biblical laws that the Pharisees required and practiced. Well, we can think of legalism in two ways, hard or soft legalism. Hard legalism is the use of the law in a self-centered, boastful manner, seeking to earn a righteous standing before God. And soft legalism is more of the subtle kind, which is the kind of sincere piety that seeks to fulfill God's commands out of love and obedience without trying to thereby manipulate God or merit salvation. The first seems really bad. The second, of course, seems a little bit more subtle. But Paul's point is both are bad and both are ineffective. Paul's argument against the works of the law cannot be merely a condemnation of legalism, whether soft or hard, because Paul isn't contrasting faith to legalism only, but rather faith to works entirely. Paul's point is that no human deeds, however well motivated 
and sincerely performed can ever achieve the kind of right standing before God that results in the verdict justified. Secondly, did Paul mean by the works of the law specific issues that were facing the Galatian churches were facing, namely circumcision and the purity and food laws, the very things that the Judaizers were requiring of the Galatian Christians? Well, Paul could not have meant just these issues because later on Paul would argue circumcision is just one aspect to the obedience of the law and that those who do not persevere in all or the whole law are actually cursed under the law if you reference Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 and Galatians chapter 5 verse 3. Well, the third view is the most likely the correct understanding. When Paul speaks of the works of the law, he means the commandments given by God in the Mosaic legislation in both the ceremonial and moral aspects, precepts or laws commanded by God under the Old Covenant, and thus, in it of themselves, they were holy and good. And Paul's point was, because of the fallenness of human beings, no flesh could ever be justified by observing the law, and such was what God actually had intended from the very beginning. The question then is, why would God give a law no one could keep? Or issue commands no one could obey? Why God? Well, Paul would struggle with this question in chapters 3 and 4 as he described the divine purpose for the law in salvation history. But here in this verse, verse 16, Paul simply presents the punchline in the next phrase. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in in Jesus Christ. Now again, this phrase is one of the most fiercely debated phrases in theology by biblical scholars in this epistle. And the debates have to do with interpreting the phrase faith of Jesus Christ. Okay? You, you with me? Faith in Jesus Christ, where faith in Jesus Christ is the objective genitive, or faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the subjective genitive. Are we justified by faith? in the work of Jesus Christ, the objective? Or are we justified by faithfulness of Christ, the subjective? Well, let me simply summarize what biblical scholars vigorously have been debating for centuries this way, borrowing the words of Dr. Timothy George. When Paul speaks of faith as essential for justification, he was thinking of the necessary human response to what God has objectively accomplished on the cross. Hence, we are justified by faith, objective, not on the account of faith. Just follow along. Bible-believing Christians must guard against the temptation to turn faith itself into one of the works of the law. We must understand saving faith is a radical, supernatural gift from God, never a human responsibility or possibility. Faith is not an achievement that earns salvation any more than circumcision is. Rather, faith is the evidence of saving grace manifested in the renewal of the heart by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can't conjure up faith any more than you can will the chair that you are sitting on to hold you up. Faith is a certain objective reality made known to us by God in the finished work of Christ Jesus. You don't collapse to the ground sitting on that chair because the chair that you are sitting on is a faithful chair. Amen? How much more is faith in Jesus Christ? It is certain. It is unchangeable. It's unbreakable. It is reliable totally, completely. 
It's not dependent on us. It's dependent on Him. It's revealing of Himself to you and me through His Word, by His Spirit. Another theologian, Phil Riken, says it this way, When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God treats us as if we were righteous, as Jesus is. God credits us with His righteousness. To use the proper term for this, God imputes Christ's righteousness to us so that what Jesus did through the cross and the empty tomb counts for us. Justification is the judicial act in which God pardons sinners considering them righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And so when He justifies a sinner, God declares that as far as He is concerned, that a sinner is as righteous, that you and I are as righteous as His own Son. Isn't that amazing? That's justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Allow me to drive it even deeper by reading you how the Heidelberg Catechism answers the question, how art thou righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? The answer is this. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commands of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, Nevertheless, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience with which Christ had accomplished for me. And as much as I embrace such benefit with a faithful, believing heart. Whew! Incredible, isn't it? You'll see that Paul quotes Psalm 143, verse 2, in the final phrase of verse 16 that our sister Faith read for us earlier for our scripture reading. And in the wider context, Psalm 143, David petitions God for deliverance from the enemy. And the rescue envisioned by David depends entirely on God's faithfulness and upon his righteousness. Psalm 143, 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And of course, we know that God's ultimate plan of rescue and righteousness for us is through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be justified through faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, how does this truth impact you today? By God's justification through faith in Christ for you and me. The ground of His final judgment has moved from the end of history to the center, to the cross and the resurrection. On the cross, the debt of sin has been fully paid. Satan has been unmasked and hell has been put on notice that time is running out. In the meantime, between the already and the not yet, God's righteous verdict of justification has been pronounced upon all those who place their trust in the crucified and coming Messiah. This doesn't mean Christians are, of course, exempt from accountability. This is not an excuse for licentiousness. Rather, our justification through Christ, through faith in Christ, will be evidenced in our lives onto God before others to test and prove our genuineness. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, do you live in such freedom, in humility, and gratitude with joy unspeakable that you have been delivered from your wretched depravity and eternal damnation? 
How does the reality of justification free you up to worship God today as the Savior and lover of your souls rather than a suffocating and oppressive slave master? Examine your hearts today, brothers and sisters, and relish in the reality that God has gifted you His righteousness, that God has gifted you certain unshakable faith. That's point number one. Point number two, how do we persevere in the gospel? Point number two, we are justified through faith in Christ. Verses 17 through 19. In verse 17, Paul anticipates the objection justification through faith alone may elicit from Judaizers and the charges that Paul and Peter received as ones who held to the gospel of grace. So look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, he says. What Paul is reasoning here is if in the proclaiming of the truth of justification through faith in Christ, he and Peter abandons the observation of the law and the Jewish covenant and its regulations, and hence, according to their view, are found to be sinners? The question is then, is Christ responsible for their sin? Is Christ the promoter of sin? In teaching that the laws of the Mosaic covenant were no longer required, Paul says, certainly not. And here Paul is using some of his strongest negations in his vocabulary. God forbid. Christ has not led us to sin, but rather his cross has revealed to us the depth of our own depravity. And he reasons further why in verse 18. Look at verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Simply Paul, thinking about Paul's hypocrisy, is saying, if you or I or anyone rebuild what was torn down, if anyone seeks to reinstate the requirements of the law as a test of fellowship within the Christian community, they would show themselves to be sinners. They are the ones who are transgressing against God because they're trying to reverse what Christ had already done. Paul is repeating what he already claimed to deny Christ's finished work, to reject God's new covenant, to add to the gospel, to subject themselves to the law again is a reversal of the work that Christ had accomplished by his death and resurrection. Paul had no intention of denying that the law is holy and righteous, containing as it does the precepts of the holy and righteous God. But the point of Paul's argument is that the law cannot produce a right standing before God. You with me? Furthermore, in verse 19, Paul anticipates another potential objection. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, by denigrating or lessening the law as a proper path for right standing before God, was Paul undermining the basis for living a righteous life? Did not Moses command the children of Israel to walk in God's ways, to keep his commands and decrees and laws in order to live, according to Deuteronomy 30, 16? Did not Jesus himself say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what does that mean? How do we understand what Paul is saying in light of this? Well, the last phrase of that verse was Paul's point exactly when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but came to fulfill them. You see, that was what Paul was teaching us. Jesus came to fulfill the law. We ourselves cannot fulfill the law in its entirety. Therefore, we are under a curse. We are under God's judgment. But through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. 
The next phrase, the first part of verse 20, should actually be read as a part of verse 19. I have been crucified with Christ, which completes Paul's thought. Listen, Paul was not saying that the law of God had lost all meaning or relevance for the Christian believer, which is the error of antinomianism. There is no undermining of the old covenant here by Paul at all. Because only through the law, get this, only through the old covenant, we, true believers of Jesus Christ, appreciate the redemption plan in Christ all the more. We get a glimpse of the depth of Christ's substitute life and his substitute death when we understand the impossibility of man even to dare to uphold all of the law as Christ did. In fact, the law is a curse for sinners like us. Holiness and righteousness is crushing. We cannot bear it on our own as Christ did on the cross. Yet Paul clarifies this profound truth for us. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear to anyone who is struggling to be justified, to anyone who is striving for peace with God. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. According to the will of God and Father, this was God's purpose all along. That sinful man be redeemed only through his son Jesus Christ who is truly God and truly man, by his sinless life, by his substitute death, Christ took upon himself all of the sins and all of the punishment and the wrath of God reserved for you and me. He became the curse. He took upon himself all of our unrighteousness. He became sin who knew no sin. But by his resurrection, Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all. Christ fulfilled all of the law. Ephesians 2.14 through 16 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, that all who would repent and trust in him would have his gift righteousness through faith, and live the abundant life here and now and eternal life with him and all who love and fear his name to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, Psalm 4610 says, Stop striving and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Friends, visitors, guests, if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, this invitation is for you. Only Christ's finished work will justify you. If the Spirit of God is moving in your heart right now in this moment, if these words make sense to you and is drawing you to look to Him and call on Him, receive His gift of repentance and faith. Repent, which means to turn from trusting in yourselves and turn from sin. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you, not for the person next to you, for you and trust Him with your whole life today and the next day and forevermore. Amen? Brothers and sisters, to know that you are in Christ means to know that you have died to the law so that you might live to God. The same encouragement is for you. Stop trying. Stop striving. Rest in Him. Cling to Him. Look to Him. To know that you are in Christ is to know that you have been crucified with Christ. 
As John Piper says, becoming a Christian does not mean deciding in your head the doctrine of the Bible with your mind. Satan believes every doctrine of the Bible. Becoming a Christian means actually death. A Christian is a person who has died with Christ, whose stiff neck has been broken, whose brazen forehead has been smashed, whose stony heart has been ground to smithereens, whose pride has been slain, and who has been utterly mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads us to our final point of clarification. How do we persevere in the gospel? Be clear on this. Point number three. Only by grace. Only by grace. Verses 20 through 21. Goodness, let me give you some homework. If you have not already, you should memorize Galatians 2.20. You should memorize Galatians 2.20. One of the most powerful verses and truths to anchor your soul by. Amen. Galatians 2.20. In fact, let's do it together. Repeat after me now. I have been crucified with Christ. I can't hear you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Can I pick on somebody? Just kidding. Maybe next week. Brothers and sisters, to truly know the gospel, to persevere through faith in Christ, is not to hear and know the gospel and then strive by your own efforts to be a good Christian. No. Again, that's reversing the work. So we all need to be reminded again and again, we need to be clear on this. It's crucial. The power is the gospel. The fuel is the Holy Spirit. The anchor is the word. The engine is grace. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not the mere ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Zs. You need the gospel daily. You need to hear it. You need to believe it. You need to be amazed by it. You need to overflow of it. You need to proclaim it. As Paul says, I am obligated to preach the gospel in Romans 1.14. As Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. Know the gospel through and through. God, man, Christ response. Be amazed by it. Be overwhelmed by it. Overflow of it. Share it. Proclaim it as if you actually believed it. Verse 20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The new I, who is alive in Christ, is the very identity we all share as God's born-again children. It's the I that looks always away from self-reliance and self-confidence and self-exaltation, away from self-direction, wholly on to Christ. It's the new I who stakes everything on Christ, rests on Christ, live by faith in Christ. From the moment you wake up to the moment you rest your head on your pillow, Christ, 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 nothing else but Christ. Is that you? Does that identify you, characterize you, exemplify you? The new I is the one who understands that Christ, the Son of God, loves me, loves you and gave himself for me, for you. Do you understand that? Do you know that? Do you own that truth? I love Charles Spurgeon's sermon title on Galatians 2.20. Christ first, me last, nothing between but love. 
Spurgeon says, the love of Jesus was an ancient love. You can't do anything to win it or lose it. The verb is in the past tense, you see. Who loved me? Jesus loved me upon the cross. Loved me in the manger of Bethlehem. Loved me or ever the earth was. There was never a time when Jesus did not love his people. Nor ever the earth was. He saw us in the glass of his eternal purpose. He foreknew us. He looked ahead and saw that we should be and who we should be. And his love went forth to us before the day star ever even began to shine. Do not think of it, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. That he should love us at all is a wonder. That he should have loved us always is a wonder of wonders. And this love is a part of his eternal purpose and is as old as his arrangement for the history of the universe. What that means, in summary, simply, God created this world to show you how much he loves you through his son. Brothers and sisters, I hope you can see now why when Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you understand Christ's love, if you understand his sacrifice, if you understand God's eternal purpose, again, the whole point of living today, the, the whole reason why you are alive, sitting in this moment right now, worshiping Him with the children of God, is for you to feel His love for you. Do you feel it? Do you know it? John 1.16 says, From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is what it means to be justified by grace. Let me close by sharing with one author's meditations on what it means for us to be in Christ for your encouragement and for your joy. It was in Christ that God's purpose and grace were granted to us from all eternity. In Christ, the purposes and promises of God are all fulfilled. In Christ, our spiritual blindness is removed. In Christ, we are a new creation, alive in His new realm. In Christ, we have redemption. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. In Christ, we have been brought near. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have righteousness. In Christ, we are justified. In Christ, we have no condemnation. In Christ, we have freedom of the law of sin and death. In Christ, we have liberty and freedom. In Christ, religious ceremonies mean nothing. In Christ, we have spiritual circumcision. In Christ, we are sanctified. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ, we have been made complete in Christ we have boldness and confident access to God the Father with no condemnation. In Christ we have salvation. In Christ we have a glorious inheritance. In Christ God's eternal glory is ours. In Christ we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ we have resurrection power. In Christ we have spiritual gifts. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. In Christ we are found in the love and the grace and the peace of God. In Christ we are in heavenly places. In Christ we are rich in His glory. In Christ all things hold together. In Christ we have life. In Christ He is our life. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. My hope is found. Let's pray. Father, what truth you remind us of this afternoon through your word that we are justified through faith
by grace, in Christ alone. Father, what a joy, what a privilege, what unspeakable grace you have bestowed on us that we are found in Christ alone. Not based on our merits, not based on our past, not based on our self-confidence, nothing else, Lord, but by the grace of Christ in Christ alone. Father, may we live to share it, proclaim it, and experience and know this amazing grace now, today, and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.